Welcome to episode six of the Dog Training Book Club. I'm Dana Villa, certified professional dog trainer and behavior consultant and owner of Taking the Lead Dog Training located in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Today, we will be going over a wonderful book called The Power of Positive Dog Training by Pat Miller. In the last episode, I discussed my thoughts and insights about Steve Brown's book, Unlocking the Canine Ancestral Diet. If you didn't listen to that, make sure to find some time to check it out. If you're interested in learning more about canine nutrition, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes on the topic. Now, let's get into this episode's featured book. Originally published in 2001, To some, this is considered the Bible of how to train your dog using positive reinforcement. Although it's now 22 years old, this book stands the test of time in its advice, practices, and techniques. The foreword was written by world-renowned dog trainer and author Jean Donaldson. She recalls when she and the author, Pat Miller, began training dogs. All the books out there recommended corrections and making sure you held your dog responsible for their bad behavior. Both women are crossover trainers, meaning they used coercive methods and unpleasant tools to train dogs, but changed to reinforcement-based training once they knew how to do better. The next couple pages outline the author's principles, which show up throughout the book. Principle one, all living things repeat behaviors that are rewarding and avoid behaviors that aren't. To quote Pat Miller, you do not have to punish your dog in order to make behavior not rewarding. You just have to figure out how to make the right behavior rewarding enough that your dog will choose to do that behavior instead. Principle two, your dog already knows everything you're going to teach him. Your dog can lay down, walk next to you, and stay in place when he wants. Your job is to teach him words for those behaviors and make them rewarding enough to be repeated under a variety of circumstances. Principle three, Dogs can learn only one behavior for any particular cue, meaning dogs cannot understand that one word has multiple meanings. So aim to be very clear with your dog. Principle four, think in terms of what you want your dog to do, not what you don't want them doing. Prevent your dog from practicing unwanted behavior and reward consistently and generously for behavior you desire to see repeated. Part one of the book contains six chapters all related to relationship building. Chapter one is titled, Dogs Just Want to Have Fun, Don't We All? It's short and ends with telling you where the power lies in positive dog training. The power is in the fun and in the relationship that training with positive reinforcement creates. In chapter two, Miller says to train with your brain and not use pain. She explains how animals learn through operant conditioning. Basically, that means that behavior is affected by its consequences. Behavior that's reinforced gets repeated, and behavior that's punished gets suppressed. The next few pages outline the downsides of using punishment to suppress behavior and why we should all choose to teach using positive reinforcement. Chapter 3 details the importance of clarity of communication. One thing that many people fail to remember is that dogs don't come programmed to understand language. 
So instructing them verbally to get behaviors that you haven't taken the time to purposefully teach is just kind of unfair to your dog. Also, make sure to teach one cue for one action. A common one I hear in my business is people use the cue down to tell the dog to lay down, but they also use that same thing for the dog to get their paws off of something or someone. And that's just a big no-no because it's super confusing to the dog. So pick one cue for lay down and a different one for get down. She also reminds the reader that dogs don't have morals. Their behavior gets labeled by people as good or bad, but that's totally a human construct. In chapter four, Miller introduces the reader to the basic equipment needed to use positive reinforcement. We need motivators, reward markers, collars, and leashes. She also guides us through management tools such as crates, tethers, and head halters. Motivators are rewards or reinforcers, which is anything your dog likes and wants at that moment. Food and play are the most common, but other motivators can be letting your dog outside or allowing them to go greet a visitor. A common reward marker is a clicker, but you can use a word, sound, or gesture. The reward marker signals to the dog that the behavior they did while hearing it or seeing it has earned them a reinforcer. Miller suggests for a collar to have a standard flat buckle collar or a martingale collar and a six foot leash. She advises against retractable leashes for training. A crate should need no explanation except to say that you will save you and your dog a lot of hassle if you crate train your dog. A tether can be a chew-proof type or just a regular old leash connected to something heavy. This keeps your dog more stationary to avoid them doing undesirable behaviors like begging at the table. A head halter is a tool that can be useful if your dog is a strong puller and outweighs you. This management tool must be conditioned for your dog to tolerate it prior to use. Chapter five educates the reader about how to begin training. Starting out can be quite simple. You just observe and then you're ready with your motivators to reward your dog. Two ways to train are using capturing and shaping. These involve the dog offering behaviors naturally and you reward what you like. Shaping is all about observing and rewarding small parts of a bigger desired behavior. Her example in the book is to teach the dog to spin in a circle. Using shaping and capturing, you would use your clicker to mark and reward the dog turning his head slightly, then turning his head and neck, and then his body a little bit, and then a little bit more and a little bit more until he's spinning in a circle. Some other ways to train behaviors are through modeling, luring, and molding. Modeling is essentially copying the behavior that someone else does. Dogs are the best models for other dogs. Luring is when the dog's body follows the motivator. A common use of luring is to get the dog to lay on the floor. You take some food, put it to their nose, and slowly move your hand towards the floor. The dog follows the food down, and when their belly hits the floor, you give them the reward. Molding refers to physically putting the dog in a position, like pushing on their butt to get them into a sit. In positive reinforcement training, this is highly discouraged as a way of teaching since most dogs find this very unpleasant. In chapter six, the last chapter in part one of the book, 
we discover why Miller believes that punishing a dog for his or her behavior is rarely ever needed if you know how to use positive reinforcement instead. Make sure you don't skip over this chapter. Part two of the book contains chapters seven through 14, which takes you through a six-week training plan. It all starts by choosing where to train, which typically should be in a low distraction environment to optimize your dog's learning. And then you would slowly switch where you train to incorporate distractions systematically. She also addresses common questions like, how long should I train my dog each day? And explains when to use a reward marker to tell the dog they did something right, and when to use a no reward marker to let them know they didn't quite hit the mark and they need to try again. Miller walks the reader through how to teach their dog what the clicker means, to respond to their name, sit, lay down, stand next to you, spin and twirl in a circle, come when called, four paws on the floor, targeting their nose or paw to your hand, loose leash walking, shake, high five, wave, wait, take it, leave it, go to a spot, stay, give, weave, play dead, roll over. And that's just some of the behaviors in the book. There are so many behaviors in this book. Each behavior is laid out in detail with common workarounds to use when you hit some bumps in the road. In part three, we have chapters 16 to 20, along with an epilogue. These chapters guide the reader through how to address challenging behaviors, such as house training, not being accepting of other dogs or people, barking, separation distress, biting, resource guarding, and how to best manage dogs and kids. The big takeaway for me from part three is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure. Behaviorally, that equates to your dog getting lots of positive exposures in their life with you. Quality exposure to people, dogs, sounds, bikes, kids, you touching their things, all of this is the key to preventing issues. The epilogue is perhaps my favorite part of the book. It helps guide you on how to find a qualified behavior professional, giving you specific things to look for like that they will value ongoing continuing education and that they will never ever give you a guarantee since behavior is far too complex to be guaranteeing anything. Before we wrap up, I want to go more into why dogs behave like they do, because as a behavior consultant, I see clients every day with dogs with behavior quirks. Many of these people did a lot of exposure work when they got their dog. They took them to dog-friendly places, introduced them to family and friends slowly, and even took dog training classes. But still their dog may have issues with people or other dogs or sounds or going in the car or a plethora of other things. What I often find is that while the exposure work was done, from the dog's perspective, it likely was not all that positive. It was stressful. They were overwhelmed from time to time, or they actually had a bad experience. All of this can result in dogs growing up with less than desirable behaviors. And even when you did, in fact, do everything in your power to guarantee the dog's experiences were positive, it's still possible your dog develops behavior issues. And that's because behavior is complicated. Genetics plays a huge role, and that's totally out of your control. Dogs from excellent breeders can have fears, phobias, and display aggression, just as likely as the dog sitting in your local shelter can be. Plus, those genetics can go far, far back. 
some breeds have thousands of years of artificial selection behind them that shape their behaviors, tendencies, and likes and dislikes. Learning history and environment also plays a role in behavior. Learning starts from the day dogs are born. If a dog was born in a country on a farm and spent two months there around maybe just two or three adults and their litter mates, then they come into a city with lots of sounds, people, other dogs, cars. Shouldn't surprise us that they might not do well acclimating because their learning history and their initial environment never prepared them for that. This is why you should never, ever, ever get your dog from a pet store or buy them online. No doubt they were not raised in a loving, enriching environment that was trying to prepare them well for modern life. And then there's the individual self, the personality. Every dog, no matter the breed, is unique. Getting a purebred dog may stack the odds that certain behaviors are more or less likely to be, but by no means does that guarantee anything. Many retrievers don't retrieve, many guardian breeds don't guard, many herding breeds don't hurt anything. But when these breed types do their breed typical behaviors, it should be no surprise to you. I'll get more into these topics in the next book I discuss, so make sure to hit the subscribe button to not miss the next book, Meet Your Dog by Kim Brophy. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like this podcast, please hit me with some positive reinforcement by giving me five stars on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. See you next time.